Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. She was forged in the fires of the suffragist movement, and beneath her abbreviated costume beats the heart of a lion, fighting for truth, equality, and justice by the spear of Athena and the thunderbolts of Jove. It's Wonder Woman. The end. This episode does have a little ears warning. You know how Cartoon Network has the Adult Swim cartoons? Let's consider this episode the History Chicks version of Adult Swim. Yes, we are talking about a character who was created for kids. And of course, we don't get really explicit on anything, but there are some more mature themes that are present in the Wonder Woman story that you need to determine if your children are ready to hear. Those include discussions of suicide, alternative lifestyles, and adult, let's call it play. When Wonder Woman first appeared... On the surface, she might have been seen as simply the feminine answer to the patriotism found in the new Captain America comic strip during the dark days of World War II. But she was inspired by a feminist movement that goes back almost a century before her birth. And she serves as a bridge between the battle for women's suffrage in the mid-1800s and the feminist movements of the 1960s and the 1970s that swept all over the world. Two big, famous things. What was happening between the 1920s and the 1960s? Well, Wonder Woman kept the light on. Have you seen a chorus line during intermission? How they will come out with a light on a stand and set it on the stage. It's called a ghost light. And Wonder Woman is basically the ghost light between those two feminist movements. Oh, that's very good. (laughs) Well, and I am going to argue that Wonder Woman, the comics, may well have shaped the minds of the generation that became adults in the 60s and 70s. And so, Therefore, Wonder Woman changed the direction of women's history. But in order to get there, we have to go back in time. And similar to the way that we went into the lives of L. Frank Baum and Lewis Carroll during our Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland episodes, we will begin with the story of Wonder Woman's creator. He was a man named William Moulton Marsden. He was born on May 9th, 1893 in the Cliftondale village of Saugus, Massachusetts. It's outside of Boston. His father, Frederick, was a fabric merchant who, at least according to his wife's family, married above his station when <laughs> he married Annie Dalton Moulton in 1887. At that point, he was 24. She was nearly 30. She had been a teacher. And it's her family that's going to really influence the early life of William Marston. Mama's only brother had died young, and she was one of five sisters. So her child, her late-in-life only child, was the only one to carry forward a family name and a reputation that went back to the signing of the Magna Carta. I mean, that's a lot of pressure, I think. He was an extremely clever boy who I think had a lot of pressure to make something of himself. He did do a lot of his growing up time. He didn't live there, but at Molten Castle, which was a 22-room castle built by William's grandfather on their ancestral property in Newburyport, Massachusetts. I just think it's funny, ancestral property in the United States. 
States is kind of funny to me. And it's been demolished, so you can't visit. Yeah. And it sounded like something really wild. There's some pictures and we'll put them in the show notes, but it was made of wood to look like stone. That alone is pretty intriguing. The people that bought it next, that demolished it, said that the house looked good from a distance, but up close it didn't. But it wasn't that old. So I don't know how true that is or if they just wanted something that they thought was nicer on the hill. Marsden was a very precocious child. He collected stuffed birds. He wrote poems and stories and plays. And he loved to read. As the prince in the castle and for his entire childhood, it was as if a spotlight of good luck shone upon him. Schoolwork came easy to him. He was handsome. He was popular. He was elected class president multiple times, played football on his championship-winning high school team, all hail the conquering hero. He had never, never, ever faced an obstacle. Family money and his family smoothed the way for him. William decided he's going to go to Harvard. Therefore, they admitted him. This is the way the world works, correct? Excellent. (laughs) Best hug, pack my trunks. I'm going to sail through this period of my life too. BRB. Finally, he's at Harvard, his goal. But life wasn't as easy as it had been. School wasn't as easy for him. He said, quote, I had to take a lot of courses that I hated. Why did he hate them? Well, probably because he wasn't writing, which is what he really wanted to do. History 1 specifically was a big trouble spot for him because he had to memorize things. He just wanted to write whatever he wanted to write, but he would fail when he tried. So this big fish in a small pond... Having his booty kicked by freshman year because of ennui. I mean, I'm placing the back of my hand on my forehead right now. (laughs) He had no tools, though, to overcome adversity. No one had prepared him for hard work or failing at all. And brace yourselves for this. He went to a chemist friend and bought a vial of hydrocyanic acid with which to kill himself, which in the narrative sort of came out of nowhere, seems extreme. You know, you read it and you think he what? Bought poison. But this actually goes back to his childhood. He had a neighbor who had committed suicide. And when he heard about it, he said, huh, well, life is easy, but if it gets difficult, I'll just end it. Simple as that. And life was getting difficult for him. So I guess he's true to his word. He had some kind of thing percolating in the back of his mind. It's best for everybody if you just check yourself out, if you start being a burden or a drag. So as extreme as that seems to him, it made perfect sense. I, however, am sort of bewildered by the casualness, honestly, with which this is written about. Right. I agree. So freshman year is overwhelming. I mean, I was overwhelmed in freshman year in college. It's a whole new world. There's a lot more responsibilities. And I got through it with pizza shuttle and listening to the Smiths. But what saved my reason, honestly, put me on a different path, is getting involved in something bigger than myself. In my case, it was the theater department. But Marston had a different path. His path was a class called Philosophy A. It was ancient philosophy. And the professor began the class by explaining that philosophy had three influences, freedom, leisure, and wonder. What a coincidence. Marston has 
three influences freedom leisure and wonder this <laughs> might this whole college thing might work out after all and the, the professor went on to say that when he was going to use the word man he meant men and women because the harvard class was full of men harvard didn't enroll women yet yeah, the professor used to yell, girls are human beings, gentlemen, which is a point often overlooked in this world. His professor was the widower of the late Alice Palmer, who had been the president of Wellesley College, a suffragist, an advocate for women's rights and education. And then he himself was a strong believer in the equality of women, both as a way to honor his wife, who he never stopped mourning, and as a component of his own life's work. And he was the faculty sponsor of the Harvard Men's League for Women's Suffrage. And that was the group that invited women speakers to campus. One of their speakers was Florence Kelly. We had talked about her in the Jane Addams podcast. She's an alumna of Hull House, one of the workers there who went on to change the world. And her views were one thing, an eight-hour workday, abolition of child labor, having a minimum wage at all. All sounds pretty familiar, mm -hmm. but it was her insistence that nothing would change for the working poor until women got the vote that turned Harvard into an argument factory. About half the students were all for it, and the other half were stuck in that time-honored feeling that women should be educated enough to produce quality citizens in the next generation and be decorative and be useful, but more than that, mm, not so much. And then they upped the stakes for their next speaker. The next in the series, Emmeline Pankhurst. She was a British suffragette. And these were the radical suffragettes, not the suffragists that we often talk about here in the United States who did peaceful marches. The British suffragettes were chaining themselves to railings, were getting arrested, were going on hunger strikes. And Emmeline Pankhurst was ahead of them. They were setting things on fire. They were breaking windows. They were assaulting policemen who had no way to deal with lady persons hitting them. They're like, you know, cannot compute. So admired by a certain radical element of the suffragist movement, but also feared. And Harvard itself was afraid, I'll tell you that, and banned her from speaking. So she spoke off campus at a dance hall. It held 500 people. And students from Harvard and Radcliffe, which is the sister school to Harvard, came. That dance hall that only held 500 people, 1,500 people crammed into it, around it, on it, wherever they could find a space to listen to her talk. And Marston was one of them. The debate and the energy and the distraction brought Marsden back from the brink of ending it all. He was saved by a powerful woman who broke the chains that bound her to bring justice to the world. And I would like to leave Marsden here in this dance hall a moment with his open mouth and the fire in his heart and, and time travel back to the year of his birth again. And um, space travel? Plain old travel? <laughs> Whatever you call it. <laughs> this is Wonder Woman. We can timeline travel as much as we want. It's very, very keeping good. with the theme. <laughs> well, let's go to the Isle of Man. I swear to you, the irony... <laughs> of Marston's future wife coming from the Isle of Man, given Wonder Woman's origin, does not escape me, where Marston's future wife was born the same year he was. Sarah Elizabeth Holloway was the oldest of the two children of Daisy Goss Holloway and William Holloway. 
Her mama was the daughter of Queen Victoria's yacht captain who once saved the King of Spain from drowning and was therefore knighted. Nice. I love that. I don't know what he did. Did he get him by the belt loop? I really don't know any more than that. I just think that's a great story. Her papa was an American who worked at a bank. And so at five, following some work opportunities, she and her family moved to America. By eighth grade, she and Marston were in the same class. And that's when they met. They met in eighth grade. He was the class president. She was the class secretary. He was very smart. She was probably smarter. (laughs) Yes. So in eighth grade at the age of 14, Sadie, as she was known, hit Marsden between the eyes with the thunderbolt of love, even though by their own account, they spent the whole year arguing, you know, (laughs) hate and love, opposite sides of the same coin. She said later that they both liked the battle. She was a tomboy who took no one's crap, even though she was a teeny tiny person. She had a very, very large personality. And although they stayed paired up, In the way that you might in high school, they went to different high schools, which I think was good for her, actually. I do, too. And she excelled in high school in subjects that many people thought were a male prerogative, math, philosophy, and Greek in particular. Her parents believed in educating their children the same, even though one was a boy and one was a girl. Her mother, in particular, made sure she had empowering reading material. And from our podcast, we know that a lot of higher education depends on the father, quote, allowing his daughter to learn things. Mm -hmm. He would have preferred her to stay at home and get married and settle down after high school. But Sadie was very smart and she was loved school. There's no way she was going to stay at home. So she enrolled in Mount Holyoke College. It was the first women's college in the United States, also in Massachusetts, but about 100 miles west of Boston, which is where Harvard is. And so is Marston. She became part of the second generation of young women to head off to college. I will tell you, we're still in numbers only around 2% of total high school graduates for women went to college. So it's pretty rare. And she studied her beloved Greek and math and English and history and philosophy, a subject she shared with Marsden. She was on the debate team. She wrote for the college newspaper. She played field hockey. That's brave. (laughs) She was in the choir and the philosophy club. And she was in a club called the Boston Baked Bean Club, which I have no idea what that is. I actually contacted Mount Holyoke to see if they could tell me and nobody got back to me. So I'm so sad. I think it's a social club. It might be like Skull and Bones, you know, Mm -hmm. or the Masons, you know? Oh, yeah. (laughs) The girls. Yeah. So I guess the short version is that Sadie took life by the throat and shook it. You know, she was a force. And these new women, as they were called, always in quotes, new women, were sort of terrifying to the men in power. I think Marston was shaped, not warped, pleasingly shaped by his early exposure to one of these pioneers. You know, one of the new women got a hold of him in eighth grade. Right, right. (laughs) So, okay. So now knowing what that influence is and then washing him back to Harvard to our timeline, Marston is getting exposed to something else. A questionably behaved German psychologist professor of his. 
So this man named Dr. Munsterberg taught at Radcliffe, the sister school to Harvard, despite being completely against higher education for women. Riddle me that. He performed (laughs) experiments measuring emotion and sensation. We are skating close to the edge and liked to use his students, his female students, as test subjects. As was happening all over the country and in fact, all over the world, the Department of Philosophy was sort of morphing and changing and splitting off into the Department of Philosophy and Psychology. Psychology, sort of a brand new concept. Marsden had begun studying with the good professor and was soon invited to be his lab assistant, securing Radcliffe girls into their restraints for experiments in deception detection. They tested temperature and perspiration and reaction time and heart rate in an era in which women did not like to see a doctor for lady problems because of embarrassment. A handsome man tied them to a chair in the interest of science. Well, well. It probably helped because they were Radcliffe students, you know, mostly these new women, you know, they were a little more open-minded than the general population of women at the time. Well, this may be another formative episode, but Dr. Munsterberg actually does appear later in the Wonder Woman comics as a man named Dr. Psycho. (laughs) So Marston knew even back then that this was a little sus. (laughs) But William got some bad news from home. His father's business was failing and there might not be money to keep him in Harvard for sophomore year. Then, as now, the name Harvard had some cachet and it was very important for William that he stay and complete his education. Sadie and William did date still through college. He would either go down to Mount Holyoke or she would go up to Boston. And she was such a radical. She broke the rule of no riding unchaperoned on a streetcar with a boy. My surprise level is pretty low. Yeah, no kidding. I can just see her going, that is the stupidest rule ever. When they would have their weekend dates and she would go to Cambridge, they often went to the movies. And William said, oh, look at these movies. They sort of have a script. Maybe I should write these. There might be some money in it. So he went and bought a book. He'd watch YouTube now, not available to him. I know, right? (laughs) He bought a book called How to Write a Photoplay. And he began during the dates, maybe irritatingly, to take notes as to structure. What happens? What are the elements? Who are the characters? How important is camera angle? Blah, blah, blah. And then he began to churn out scripts, if you can call them that with no dialogue, they actually called them scenarios or photoplays for the burgeoning motion picture industry. I encourage you to listen back to our Mary Pickford episode to kind of understand that there were so many infant movie companies and all of them needed material. So it's not like you had a giant high bar to meet During the early days, as we talked about during Mary Pickford, a lot of times if you were a lady person and said, can I be in your movies? They pretty much said, are you breathing? Please come in. You know, there wasn't a lot of discrimination there at the beginning. No, no, there was not. But he put a little bit more thought into it, I think, than a lot of the people who are writing these scenarios. So even though he was getting $25 a pop, quite a lot of money in those days, it wasn't quite enough to maintain him. He had to kind of go tail between his legs and apply for a scholarship. And so luckily he did get one. 
and was able to return to the lab where he started to explore yet another avenue. Blood pressure, he theorized, could be used to detect when someone was lying. Now, this idea may have actually come straight from the mouth and head of Sadie herself because she said to him, I feel like my blood pressure goes up whenever I'm upset at you. Like all the time. I can feel it (laughs) go up whenever I'm feeling uneasy about something. And that might be the germ of the idea. She did help him by writing some stories for the test subjects to read all about a friend of theirs who'd been accused of a crime. Just so Marsden wouldn't have any idea what the subjects were reading. He put together a simulated jury to try these cases that Sadie was writing, these fake stories. His job was to determine when people were lying. So Marston had no idea what the subjects were reading. When it came time to examine them, the subjects could choose for themselves whether to lie or to tell the truth about what they had read. It was completely up to them. And Marston didn't know what they were going to pick. In fact, he didn't even know what they had read. So the jury based their decision on what they had heard and what they had seen to determine whether or not the subject was lying. And Marsden had his theoretical blood pressure machine. With his system, he was accurate 103 out of 107 times. But the jury, just hearing the words, was accurate half of the time. So 50 percent. So Marsden had just pioneered the lie detector test. He was very excited. Won't this be useful in my law career? (laughs) It all began with a pair of Rothy's. The style, the point, the color, chili red. I had heard about Rothy's. I had heard how comfortable they are, how there's no break-in period. And the thing that attracted me the most is Rothy's shoes are seamlessly knit with thread that's made from plastic water bottles and marine plastic. I had to try it. Well, I'll tell you this. Those red shoes were immediately joined in the closet by a pair of the flat in a crew. It's a really neutral color. These are great shoes to have now when we're at home all the time. I learned the hard way that if I don't wear shoes when I'm home, when I want to wear the cute shoes that are in my closet, they aren't going to fit. The Rothys solved this problem for me. They match everything. They feel like a slipper. But when I look down, I feel like I'm dressed in a shoe. I can go out in them. One time I was traveling and I had a pair of Rothys on and I caught a couple eyes of women who also had pairs on. And we kind of gave a little head nod like we were in a club or something. We knew. We knew that our shoes were made of sustainable materials and they're washable. I learned that the hard way, too, when I spilled some coffee on my lovely A-Crew shoes. I just threw them in the washer and they came out perfect. Check out all the amazing shoes and bags available right now at rothys.com slash chicks. That's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash chicks. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites at Rothy's. So head to rothys.com slash chicks today. In 1915, several things happened in really quick succession. First, William had entered one of his screenplays into a contest, and it won. He won this contest, and his screenplay was turned into a movie. So William's movie opened. 
But two days later, the Lusitania, which was a cruise liner uh, sailing in the Celtic Sea, was sunk by German submarines. All the attention of anybody is certainly not on the movies. It's on this event. Germany and England were already at war, but on the Lusitania, hundreds of the people that died of the 1,200 were Americans. So now America was involved in this war. Also in the spring of 1915, Sadie graduated from Mount Holyoke, and a month later, William graduated from Harvard. And what he did was take the prize money from that scenario writing contest and bought her an engagement ring. I also want to mention the second the second mention of Jane Addams in this podcast. During Sadie's graduation from Mount Holyoke, Jane Addams was actually presented with an honorary degree at that same ceremony. Love that. Everybody's in the room. I know. <laughs> well, typically, only 50% of Mount Holyoke graduates ever married. But in her class, Sadie was the first one to get married. She's the very first one. I, that just surprises me because she's so progressive and forward thinking. She did grudgingly take his name. She said, quote, we're stuck with either our father's name or our husband's. So choose the one you like the best. The thing she didn't appreciate, however, was that even though she loved her first name or at least her nickname, Sadie, she'd gone by it her whole life. She said it was reminiscent of Zadie, the Earth Mother, and she loved it. It fit her. It fit her personality. The end. Marsden said he didn't like it and he wouldn't call her that. And he also hated her middle name, which was Elizabeth. So he decided he was going to call her Betty. So in the space of one day, Sadie went from Sadie Holloway and that name does fit her. So mm -hmm. peppy and fiery and this and that, she is now known by the world as Betty Marsden. That's not yeah. her name. I'm going to keep calling her Sadie because I, I like it so much. Well, and I think I am too. Okay, good. <laughs> and most books actually proceed with Holloway, her maiden mm -hmm. name. So we might as well just follow our own instincts, follow her advice and choose the name we like the best and go ahead with that. Excellent. So Marson decided to go to law school, and so Sadie decided she'd go to law school, too, though not at Harvard, which those dumb bunnies, she said, still don't admit women. <laughs> and they wouldn't until 1950. Oh. We're in 1915 right now. We got a long time to go. You know what? What is that movie with Julia Roberts in it where there's those girls? Oh. Um Maggie Gyllenhaal is in it, yeah. Julia Stiles, and the, the Julia Stiles character says that Harvard reserves three spaces or something for women. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And that was in the 50s. It's not like they opened the gates wide and said, come along, in. They like had a quota of a very small quota of women students. Anyway, that's Harvard. But she enrolled at Boston University, and I have to say she did great. She loved the academic exercise of it. She loved the sheer volume of information, the arguing, the debate. She was one of only three female students in her class, speaking of small quotas or whatever. Mm -hmm. So she was knocking it out of the park in her studies. And William was sort of pulling a gentleman's C over at Harvard. Well, he did also have a side hustle of teaching psychology at Radcliffe. I'm not going to defend him. She's a brilliant woman. 
but he had his attentions drawn in other directions. I think he probably had a problem doing that anyway, you know, focusing on one thing. (laughs) Well, what he was interested in more than anything else, it seems like at this point, was bringing his lie detector research into the public eye. He tried and tried. And as war approached, he like brought his technology to the government. He was rejected by the War Department, the Department of Justice, the Office of Military Intelligence and the New York Police Department. Kind of for good reasons. I mean, his shtick was good. They all let him have a hearing, but he ultimately ended up accusing an innocent man. And then rather than admitting he was wrong or needed recalibration or something, he doubled down and said, well, I might not have caught him now, but he is a guilty man. We need to dig and figure out what he's guilty of. And they're like, we are not going down that road. Cucamonga. Like... (laughs) Um, You know, confidence in his technique was low because it didn't seem to be able to be replicated by others. That's a fundamental principle of science. You know, your experiment must be able to be also performed by people that aren't you, you know, following a series of instructions. And that did not seem to be happening. No, but there was an organization that accepted him, the U.S. Army. Just a few months after both Marston and Sadie finished law school and passed the bar, side note, they took the exam at the same time. She finished so much faster than him. She was waiting out in the hallway for him to finish up. That's how smart Sadie was. But Marston was commissioned as a second lieutenant, and he was sent to Georgia to teach military psychology, specifically military problems of testimony. So he's in his field sort of. There in Georgia, far away from home, Marsden met a woman named Marjorie Huntley, who happened to be the camp librarian, a militant suffragist who had gotten married because she didn't like her original last name. (laughs) And then she divorced her husband, having gotten her last name out of him. Goodbye. This is the last chance to take the children out of earshot, by the way. (laughs) Uh, If you're planning to do that or hit stop or pause or something. Marjorie Huntley practiced the art of, and I quote, love binding. Miss Huntley, for half a year, educated our Marsden in the art of bondage. Deep silence. She was a very colorful woman overall. She kind of reminded me a lot of Victoria Woodhull at this point because she was a spiritualist who believed in reincarnation. Uh, she believed in out-of-body experiences and free love. We had talked about that in Victoria Woodhull's episode. Free love doesn't mean like Woodstock. At least no. it doesn't have to mean that. But what it means is that ladies should be as free as men not to tie themselves to the bonds of marriage. And, you know. Right. The bonds of marriage, no. But the bonds of leather, yes. <laughs> Yikes. Well, let's just say, um, if we're keeping score, that this six-month episode and beyond will end up featuring in the Wonder Woman comic book. So you can kind of see elements as they appear. The lie detector test, the lasso of truth. You know, like Mm -hmm. if you know his biography, a lot of the random elements of Wonder Woman's like scenario become clearer as to where he got them. Right. I was going to ask you, I was going to, when I was reading, if if you thought that Sadie knew about this affair. And then I read another like five pages and realized that was a dumb question. Because uh, reading a little further into any one of the books 
that cover it, some don't. It seems that both Marjorie Huntley and Mr. Marsden came home from the army and there was a polyamorous situation on deck. I am not trying to be too precious here, given what happens later, but I am just really feeling like I'm not going to canvas everything in depth, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. I think it's kind of sad at this point because William was off in the army with Marjorie having their, you know, education or whatever. But Sadie is still back in Boston with a law degree. But of course, she can't get a job as a lawyer. The best she could do is for a while selling Lifebuoy soap door to door. And then she got a position as a law clerk and a law firm. But even then she was faced with sexism. She was filing papers in court, something you needed a law degree to do. When a judge scolded her and said, young lady, please tell your employer not to send his secretary to file papers. Hmm. What she said was, quote, I didn't spit in his eye, but I wanted to. So Marston's back and Marston and Sadie enrolled in graduate school where Marston would end up with a PhD, a professorship at American University in D.C., and three failed businesses. And Sadie, quote only, ended up with a master's degree, though she did sometimes allude to his PhD thesis being partially her work. The fate of spouses from the original Mrs. Einstein to Mrs. F. Scott Fitzgerald. I am going to tell you. They took a lot of the same classes. She was going to Radcliffe. He was going to Harvard. Graduate level classes had women and men in them. And they were in class together. So you would think that she would have something, but no. She actually taught his classes sometimes at American University when he couldn't be bothered to do it under duress. She didn't want to, but that's where the money came from. And she was very angry about it. You know, she would even yell at the students like, get out of this room, get out of my face. You're not going to be laughing like that when I flunk you, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. It was difficult for a woman, despite advanced degrees, to get a good job. The world was just not ready to place educated women anywhere. That was actually the fundamental reason that whole house had been invented. The settlement house movement provided a place for educated women to use their education. So we talked about that during the Jane Addams podcast. So she is having a hard time, I think. Um, Marsden was trying desperately still to win legitimacy for his lie detector. While Marston was trying to gain legitimacy for his device, across the country in California, there was a police officer who just happened to have a PhD in physiology, like you do. He had read some articles written by Marston about lie detector tests, and he thought, oh, I can improve on this. And he did. He was getting a lot more traction with his machine because he actually had a police captain who was helping him run tests on it a police captain who was really into stats and new police techniques. It was just a perfect marriage for this device to get a lot more traction than Marsden was getting trying to sell his across the country. Right. Now, Marsden did get involved in a famous murder trial, and the judge kind of put the kibosh on the lie detector, deeming the technology of Marsden's lie detector, quote, insufficiently established to admit as evidence. That's a bummer. As a side note, um, Sadie and Marston were doing some really good work that kind of petered out. They they came up with a really great premise and 
sort of proved it and then just dropped it. And I'm not sure why, but they were testing whether or not female jurors were better evaluators of evidence than men were. And their initial reports seem to indicate that female jurors were more diligent, even though in most states, ladies could not serve on juries at this time. He was trying to open that up for them. And then it just went away. It just came to nothing. Yeah, I'm going to guess it's because life got in the way. You know, about this time is when he's being sued because of his failed businesses. He didn't disclose some income on his paperwork when he filed for bankruptcy for one of those businesses that failed. Uh, So he was actually arrested. So I think that might have played into it. Mm. Sadie herself was working while they were there in Washington. She took a job researching answers for an information service. People would write in and ask questions, kind of like if Google was run by squirrels or something. They'd ask the question, why is the sky blue? And she would research the answer. But she was so good at it that she could dictate 40 letters before lunchtime. That is like my ideal job. I know. Wouldn't that be fun for someone who likes research without Google? (laughs) That would be fun. I could see me flying down the aisles of the library, you know, yeah, getting the dusty books out and smelling them and then looking at the answers. I would really like that. <laughs> well, back at the ranch, uh, Mr. Marsden lost his job at the university. Uh, universities are very, very wary of bad public relations. And the fact that their professor of philosophy slash psychology is being dragged through the newspapers for fraud is not looking good. He lost his job. He lost the research lab they had been building for him. His next teaching gig, way, way down the academic ladder, reputation cracked as it was, was as an assistant professor of philosophy at Tufts University, where a relationship with one of his students would change his life. And to satisfy all of you that are yelling at your iPods (laughs) right now, iPods, what am I, 1992? Um, Mona Lisa Smile is that Julia Roberts movie. (laughs) Yes. I just don't know why I couldn't bring that. I, you know, I also want a paint by number. I'm going to search that out today. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I like look at those and I'm like, well, that's kind of not my thing. It's childish, but I'm so excited that you said that. <laughs> yeah. I might hereby give us all permission to regress back to second grade on the paint by water kits we used to have in the car. I love those. Well, I love going to those, you know, wine and painting parties. My friends and I have gone to several, so I have several fine masterpieces from them around my house. Two of them are on my over my bed. I liked them so much. You're an expert. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So back to our subject at hand for the third and I think final time, we need to go back in time just a little bit and cover a mini bio of a real person to get the full picture. And so here we go. For number three, Mary Olive Byrne was born in February 1904 in Corning, New York, the oldest of the two children of Jack Byrne and Ethel Higgins Byrne. Hours after her birth, her father Jack staggered home from the bar and was irritated at the noise the baby was making. And so he grabbed the new baby and threw her out the door into a snowdrift, which we can all agree is not a propitious beginning. No, neither did the baby's aunt Margaret, who was there and had helped deliver the baby because she was a nurse. 
So she raced out, grabbed the baby, got her back inside and warmed up. And whatever happened to Jack from there on, I'd really not like to talk about. Because <laughs> he doesn't even deserve the name Papa. No. So Aunt Margaret is most famous for being Margaret Sanger, advocate for birth control in America, who we have not yet covered, but still plan to. So I'm kind of sorry that we keep referring to her work through this show without any of the background, but just know she's definitely on our list and we will be covering her. But what an illustrious relation to have. Yes. Life in the Burn House was violent, I have to say. And Olive's mother sort of lived in fear of her husband's wrath and kept the baby and then later her son dosed heavily to keep them quiet with a medicine that we've talked about before, Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. Now, unbeknownst to parents and not listed on the label, this medicine was full of morphine to the point where adult addicts bought bottles of it just to get by. It led to children's deaths for an unbelievable 80 years. It, it was a trusted household brand. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like, why would you think it would kill you? Like bear aspirin was or Robitussin. Like it was just a common thing to go to the pharmacy and buy. It uh, was eventually banned but not until 1930. It killed children for almost 100 years. And so she spent her very early life dosed to the eyebrows with this medicine. It was not healthy. Something had to be done. It, you can't live like this. Ethel's choice? She took Olive and her brother and dropped them off at their paternal grandparents' house and left and never came back. She moved to New York City, pretended that she didn't have children, pretended that she wasn't married, and pursued her dream of becoming a nurse. Olive was told that her mother had died. Untrue. Whenever we cover Margaret Sanger, we can go into more detail of what happened to Ethel Byrne when she left. But um, she didn't die. She only came back once when the child was six and all that all of her members of that visit is when she got a hug, a brooch that was on her mother's chest, cut her cheek open, and that's all she remembers. That's not a very good, no. good maternal memory. That's all she had. Yep. Her grandparents did adopt her and raised her until she was about 10. But at that point, her birth father had died. She thought the birth mother was dead. The last grandparent died. And Olive and her brother were both sent off to orphanages, different orphanages. They were split up. Well, it was boys and girls, and the girls were in a convent. And so, you know, no boys allowed there. But that's all she had. That's her brother. And there she lived with the nuns and all the other girls until one day, many years later, when Olive was 16 years of age, when she heard that she had a visitor, a visitor like no one had ever visited her before. And who could it be? Well, it was her aunt, Margaret Sanger bringing news that her mother loved her and always had, and not due to the presence of nuns in the room who knew very well who Margaret Sanger was and were afraid of what was going to come out of her mouth, <laughs> I think. Not of her mother's activism, not of her mother's famous headline-grabbing hunger strike, having been militant in the course of you know justice for women. Not about her mother's life among the elite bohemians of New York. This was just basically a, hey, we exist. Welcome back. Now that you're fully grown, why don't you come into the family circle type of thing? 
So from one extreme to the other, during the summers, she went off and sang in the chorus of her uncle's female impersonator act on the vaudeville stage. How's that for the deep end? And then also to her mother's apartment in New York, steeped in the rebellious, I guess they'd say, views of those radicals who were fighting for the likes of free love, contraception, equal rights, and the breaking of the chains of bondage from enforced motherhood and societal expectations. Her mother and aunt were deep into the suffrage movement, and suffragists and the proponents of birth control used the imagery of being chained up quite a bit. Chains, shackles, break those chains of love, you know. Mm. Simultaneously, Olive through the intellectuals that her mother was friends with, began to be exposed to feminist utopian literature. What a calm and perfect society might be if men were absent. (laughs) (laughs) You know, going back almost to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they were talking about it and it almost became sort of reality, like the mythology of the Amazons who didn't have to deal with all of this violence and stink and attitude and strength and all that because they were able to make life more perfect by only having lady persons there. Well, for a young woman who is coming from a girl's orphanage run by nuns, so essentially an all-female society, it's not a huge leap. No, not at all. Not at all. And and the concept of the Amazons just was bubbling up independently all over society. And sometimes things just do that. Like, I'm not making too light of this, but like Bugs Life and Ants. Mm-hmm. were oh. arrived at independently right? and, and right. they came out at the same time or all of those assorted fairy tales as real people shows all came out at the same time. Something just is in the zeitgeist, I think. And like independently, people make works of creative art and it's kind of surprised like they didn't copy each other. Mm-hmm. They're just using the same influences. And that's what is happening with the Amazons. You know, that that once we had power and I don't know. No, it makes sense. And it's all kind of encapsulated in some of Margaret Sanger's writings. Force and fear have failed from the beginning of time. When love defeats force, the moral force of women's nature will be unchained. It's just very exciting and very radical. And, and it's honestly the first time Olive's even been a part of anything big like this. And it's connected to family, something that she hadn't known. You know what I mean? It's connected yeah. to her mom and her aunt. So there's a familial bond within a greater movement. Almost asking to herself, oh, is this who I am? Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, she was at that age. She was getting ready to go to college, something that her mother wasn't able to do because of financial reasons. But Aunt Margaret had married well, and she decided to fund Olive's education, and Olive attended Tufts University. The intent was, and I think this is her aunt and mother speaking with their hand on her back, the intent was that she was to go to school to be a doctor. And during college, she did go and work with Aunt Margaret's uh, research bureau. So she's not only planning a career in medicine, but on her breaks, she's working within an organization that's studying contraception and telling people about contraception. 
So Olive brought that information back to Tufts University and kind of became the black market contraceptive educator for the women at Tufts. Yes. In addition to that, she became quite the popular girl independently of that fact. She joined a sorority. She joined a literary society. The danger and cachet of her activities in New York made her uh, kind of an exciting figure on campus. (laughs) Oh, sure. Well, she played basketball. She was in a school operetta. That's cool. And she began the Tufts Liberal Club. Not a surprise. She proclaimed that she was a free thinker and even bobbed her hair. (laughs) You know, I've told that story of my maternal grandmother bobbing her hair. Uh, Uh Well, I bobbed my hair. I don't know if you remember a few years back, I was at a changing point in my life and we talked about your grandmother and Lucille Ball. And so I went and had my hair bobbed. That is a movie trope, isn't it? Like something changes a common and you'll get a new haircut. Yep. And Olive, speaking of haircuts, she took that bob even shorter and got what was called an Eaton cut. Just think boy's hairstyle. She dressed in as many male clothes as possible that she could get away with socially. She was very edgy. (laughs) They called flappers like that boyettes, which I thought is kind of cute. That is kind of cute. I don't know if it's a bad thing to cope, but that's cute. No, I think it was very affectionate. No, I mean, like saying it now, you wouldn't want to. It's not like one of those words like, oh, I'm going to start using this word. Yeah, well, a lot of things from the 20s don't translate. No. Let's just put it that way. Well, Olive began to work with her psychology professor. Here we go. Our old friend, Dr. Marsden. Here's where the worlds start to collide as his research assistant. Now, what was the subject of his latest experiment? Sex and submission. Did word of this leak out? Was there an affair with a student? Je ne sais pas, you know. But after this academic year, Dr. Marsden found himself curiously and increasingly unwelcome in academic circles. Even worse, a rival lie detector entrepreneur was making waves with his new polygraph and getting respect. His dream was dying more and more with regard to that. So he was having a bad time. Sadie was having no such trouble. She hadn't even been in the same state as her husband for months because she was working at a new magazine devoted to the scientific approach to parenting. She was in New York City. She went to work as a managing editor for Child Study, a journal of parent education, which later becomes Parents Magazine. Now that ladies had fewer children, they had more time to be interested in their upbringing. I find that, like looking back, I find that so sad, kind of. Do you know what I mean? Like when there were 11 of them, nobody had time to understand that they were people. We talk about some very damaged people like Henry VIII and all these people. And I just don't know, like, had more attention been paid to them as they were growing up? Would they have turned out differently? Uh, That's something for someone to study very deeply. (laughs) Well, and I'm sure that's what they were studying at this magazine, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the scientific approach to parenting. And that's what Maria Montessori's whole philosophy was, that children are people, the same as any other people, and have different needs and, and should be treated differently. Seems radical. So hooray for Sadie. Later, she became an editor at Encyclopedia Britannica. Sadie was parlaying her education into a respectable set of careers. At last, she even lectured in psychology at NYU. 
she's busy. She's fine. <laughs> she's got a, a pathway, you know? Yeah. So no, she was not available to witness things that were happening in the research lab, but nor do I think that is in their relationship to, no. to have jealousy and eyeballs. We've already been through Marjorie Huntley. Well, we aren't through Marjorie Huntley quite yet. Well, okay, let's just say Marjorie Huntley exists as a concept. So I don't know that all of as a concept would have been shocking. Do you know what I right, mean? Right, right, right. Okay. Hello, bra wearers. I have a question for you. Do you have a favorite bra? I do. Third loves 24-7 bras. Yes, that's plural. I have a drawer full of them that I've collected over the years. I love this bra so much, I just ordered yet another one. And a color that, surprisingly, I didn't have, Sienna. Third Love bras start at just $45 for high-quality, comfortable styles. And every Third Love bra is made with a very thin signature memory foam cup. The straps don't slip, there's a scratch-free band, and they have more than 80 sizes. If you're not sure what your size is, you can take their Fit Finder quiz. Millions of women have, and using those measurements is how Third Love designs their bras for a perfect fit. But they also back them with a perfect fit promise. If you don't love your bra, every customer has 60 days to return it. And you know what? They would make a really nice Christmas present for someone that you love. I know I would like to get one. Hint, hint, my people. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 10% off your first purchase. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 10% off your first order. That's third love, spell it out, T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 10% off today. Well, now Olive did graduate. In fact, she even went on to get her master's degree. But much to the dismay of her mother and Aunt Margaret, Olive never did make it to medical school. At her graduation from Tufts, just to prove that perhaps Sadie knew all about this, there is a photograph of Olive, Marston, her mother, Ethel, and Sadie, all four of them in the same photograph. So whatever the relationship was, I really think Sadie knew about it. I mean, yeah. she had to have. They had a very open relationship, just honest as far as I can tell. Yeah. Well, Olive moved in with the Marstons and ultimately became their life partner, both of them. And as a talisman of these vows and bonds, whatever they might have been lost to history, she began wearing these very distinctive bracelets on both wrists. Since, I mean, wearing wedding rings, I guess, were out of the question. Who else wears two bracelets that we know of? That's Wonder Woman. Mm, yes. Even today, the Marsden's arrangement would raise eyebrows. Thus, our little ears warning from before. But in the 20s, wow, I mean, that's unthinkable. Well, Sadie is moving on with her professional career. And when the children came, two to each woman, Olive was there to take charge of them at home. And I'm sad that Olive's medical career was cut short, but maybe that was never her goal anyway. Just her mother's, you know, pressurizing mm -hmm. her. She had, since her earliest memory, wanted to be part of, quote, a real family. She even 
felt like when she joined the sorority, like at last I finally have a family. So just imagine now, maybe the dearest wish of her heart is satisfied, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I do think Olive was getting exactly what she wanted. I do too. And I think that the Marston Byrne family was a very happy polyamorous relationship. They did take a vow of secrecy because nobody knew. Well, society was not going to be kind. Oh, no. But Olive did drop out of college to, as she said, I got sidetracked by marriage and motherhood. Not necessarily her own motherhood. Right. Because the first child was actually born to Sadie. And Olive left to take care of the child. So Olive lived under a polite fiction that her husband, one Mr. Richard, had died, leaving her a widow with two children. That is a nod to society, I think. I mean, how else was she going to explain herself? They told Marsden's mother that she was their housekeeper who had been widowed and and the housekeeper and her children were going to live in. In time, Sadie and Marsden legally adopted Olive's kids when they were preschool age for security for their future, to keep them in the family with their half-siblings. But what must that have been like for Olive to just, she gave up all legal parental rights. I mean, she's Mm -hmm. still in the house. Right. And everyone in the house knows who's who's, you know, but there was a level of trust that maybe made this just a formality. But to me, that's a little bit of a heartbreak, knowing that was the best way, though, to keep her kids safe. Right. How do you get kids not to talk about that? I don't know. But, you know, did you ever see that um, show that used to be on? Oh, see, I, I'm blanking on all this stuff because I didn't write it down. The guy that was in Twister, not Bill Pullman, but the other Bill Paxton mm-hmm. was in that show called Big Love. Oh, yes. And yes. it was the same kind of premise that they right. had um, what looked like from the front three houses, but were all connected in the back and all of these children were related to each other. And it just seemed so natural for the littler ones, but the older ones had kind of giant conflicts because they had to keep things secret. Right. Right. And there are many, probably even listening right now, polyamorous families, but these are different kind of relationships than the ones where young girls are forced to marry those type of relationships. That's not what we're talking about. We're well, talking not about- in this particular one. Like right. we can't even speak to anybody else's even during this time period. But in this particular one, everybody was okay. Yeah. Uh, all the adults were okay anyway. I really don't know how the kids felt. They didn't really talk about it a lot. They seemed like they had a very happy childhood though. And how can you not? There's three people in your home that love you. Sadie is bringing home the bacon and Olive is frying it up in a pan. <laughs> but what is Marston doing? What is he doing besides sitting in his underwear upstairs reading books, which he did a lot of the time, evidently? <laughs> what else is he doing? Well, he's not working in universities. He couldn't get another job. He had, The last one he had was at Columbia as an assistant professor. But something got put in his record that other universities weren't hiring him. So he turned to researching, researching and writing books. And Olive, since she was home all the time, was kind of still his research assistant and helped him with all of these books that he was writing and articles. The first one that he wrote was called Emotions of Normal People. It was all about homosexuality, transvestism. Is that how you pronounce that? Other fetishisms, uh, sadomasochism. And his premise was that it was all very normal in a loving relationship. 
Now, for a while, he went out to Hollywood with family in tow to advise the motion picture industry just how far they could push content before they ran afoul of the censors, which is completely on brand for him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he wrote those scenarios back in college. Yeah. Yeah. But the movie industry started to be strictly legally regulated. There was a a list of regulations called the Hayes Code that came into play that everyone had to abide by. So his particular skill set of here's how you float close to the wind, was no longer really necessary. Bummer. Bummer. He served as a pitchman slash expert for Gillette Razors in a nationwide campaign. I am not fully understanding how this worked, but basically he applied the principles of self-deception and lie detection to the choice of razor. And evidently the majority of men truly chose the Gillette Razor. Now, an ad like this and a claim like this from a man who was kind of in the public consciousness, he'd been, quote, the man of record, you know, pop psychologist for a while. The FBI decided to take a look at this ad and to try to verify it. They came and investigated his claims. And when the experiment could not be replicated... J. Edgar Hoover said, I always thought this fellow Marston was a phony, and this proves it. Yeah. I know. Not good. You know, when J. Edgar Hoover says you're a phony and the FBI says you're full of doo-doo, your credibility is therefore... Shot. Yeah. Completely. Something else phony, speaking of phoniness, Olive had begun to write for a magazine called Family Circle. My mother used to get that magazine. I think it's still in existence. She wrote articles about him or referencing him in a way that implied she had just met him. She would go to Dr. Marston's house in these articles, investigating a question about parenting and get his response. It was always exciting to meet Dr. Marston, this renowned man. Yeah, the house she visited wasn't one she lived in. His kids in the yard that she referenced weren't children that had emerged from her own body. Right. (laughs) Um, interesting. So it was written in a very um, deceptive way, I think. Well, years passed and another entertainment industry was facing some regulation and image issues. The comic book industry was brand new for a few years under the radar, maybe of mainstream society. But the big kahuna that began America's love affair with comic books was 1938's Action Comics number one. Oh, look in your attic. If you have one, you're a billionaire. <laughs> um, the debut appearance of, I, you know, give me a moment to guess who we're about to see Superman. Yes. Batman came out the next year. Captain Marvel, who I know as Shazam, after that. <laughs> Wait, I thought Captain Marvel was. Brie Larson in the movie. Isn't that not Captain Marvel? That's what I'm saying. Je ne sais pas. It's definitely not a lady. And Captain Marvel, from what I read, says Shazam and has gotten his powers exactly the way that I saw Shazam get them in that movie. (laughs) I am confused. But that said, protectors of morality were horrified by what they saw their kids reading. 90% of both boys and girls 
had been, quote, exposed, and that's three exclamation points, to what some saw as a corrupting influence. Trouble with a capital T, and that rhymes with C, and that stands for comic book, which doesn't rhyme. And that's bumping me out <laughs> right here in River City. Sex and violence ruining the delicate nervous systems. The lurid covers wrecking their eyeballs for the appreciation of, quote, real art. That's out of control. The action shortening their attention spans for quality literature. That might be true. Did you know, Susan, that there was so much going on with comic books? I have to tell you, I do not spare too many thoughts for comic books. No, I did not. Comic book history is actually broken into ages. And we are in the our story right now in the beginning of the golden age of comic books. Honestly, going into this, I didn't even know that Detective Comics, which was kind of the biggie in the comic book industry at this time, became DC. Like, I didn't know what DC stood for when mm. I went in. And I'm reading and I'm like, Detective Comics number one. Wait, Detective Comics. <laughs> yeah, it was a big moment for me. <laughs> and of course, everybody who is uh, into comic books is like rolling their eyes like, really? Oh, Another? oh yeah. Oh, I know. But now I do. Isn't that, don't you want people to learn about your thing? Correct. That's why we're here, Susan. That's why we're here. <laughs> Well, um, let's just say in in the short term, there was pressure from church groups and family groups to crack down. I mean, a government crackdown of the industry. So, uh, um, by the way, Olive's brother, remember him, is actually a, a comic book publisher. Isn't he, that interesting? He is. He um, is running a company called Fiction House, and he employs 20 female artists. Most other comic book publishers had none. His comics introduce female characters. And we're talking about an audience of 40 to 50 million readers at this point. So he's got part of the market share and a lot of the market share for women-centered comics creation and characters. Well, following the buzz... The family interest in comic books and her habit of featuring Marsden in her work for Family Circle, Olive wrote a piece in October 1940 called Don't Laugh at the Comics, in which she expresses worry as a mother that the comic books she's been buying for her kids for a bit of peace in the house, that's the iPads of yesteryear, were poisoning their minds and she needed to relieve that stress. And she would go out and ask Family Circle's noted psychologist, Dr. Marsden, and see what he thought of the comics. She would make the big pilgrimage to his house when in reality, she kind of peeked her head around the corner and said, hey, I just pitched Family Circle a piece about are comic books good for kids? What do you think, Dr. Marsden? Well, he said that he saw great educational value in the comics. They gratify the strongest human desires in life, the wish for strength, for power, and the wish to benefit other people. Can we say it's harmful to see children wanting to benefit other people with their strength? Why should we say that? And then he spent a long time waxing poetic about Superman. He claimed that he had been doing a deep dive into the comic books for over a year to come to these conclusions. But he thought that Superman was helping to develop national pride and that, yes, there is a threat of violence in the comics, but the kids know 
that the hero's going to come in and save the day. The kids know that chaining someone up isn't necessarily a bad thing. Torturing them, sure, that would be bad. But chaining them up, no, no. The hero's going to save the day. And that's, you know, satisfaction for the kids. So this is a long, long article. We have it in its entirety uh, in, in its original form. We'll provide you with a link so you can read the whole article for yourself. But this article, which is just page after page after page, this isn't a tiny little blurb, brought him to the attention of one Charles Gaines, who ran a sister company to Superman's DC Comics. And the two men started up a correspondence, which ended up Dr. Marston was hired as a consultant. Legitimately, they could say, the family circle psychologist says we're not the devil. You know, like, look, he's overseeing our whole operation over here. Your children are safe. You know, my work. It's the, the original common sense media, although he's not as reliable as common sense media. No. And he, he wasn't working alone either. It was a board of experts who said that comic books are good for kids and came up with a litany of reasons why. But just, you know, him being on the board and then being able to point to him really helped them a lot. And so now there are assorted stories about how the next thing happened exactly, whose idea it was, whose pitch it really was. Was it Sadie who had the idea? We, you know, I don't know. But all of this war, all of this, quote, blood curdling masculinity in the comic books started to bother Marsden. And what you need wherever this idea came from. It's in the air. What you need is a superhero based on love instead of brute force. What you need is a woman hero, a heroine. Do you have any information as to whose idea that was exactly? Because it really seems to be like both of the women in Marston's life are like, well, it wasn't me. It wasn't. It was just kind of, was it a zeitgeisty thing just in the air of their house? I could not tell you because sources vary so much. The comic that they were talking about, Jack Burns was already publishing it. Where there was an island of Amazons. <laughs> and a shipwrecked man came and hijinks ensued. I mean, literally, that was before this comic came up. So right. I don't know if it, he was mad about that heisting. but Yeah, I'm not sure either. But yeah, the women both get credit. Charlie Gaines gets credit sometimes. Hey, we need to make a comic book with a woman hero. And at that point, Marston jumped in with all of his pro-female um, opinions and said, yes, let's make her a woman, make it about love. And so. we'll call her Suprema, the Wonder <laughs> Woman. Ah, oh, he loved it. He loved it. And Marston had been swimming in the waters of, quote, radical feminism, at least back to Emmeline Pankhurst at Harvard and probably back to battling it out with Sadie in eighth grade. Easily. And certainly since meeting Olive, who brought with her the love of all those feminist utopias and the groundbreaking philosophies of her mother and Margaret Sanger, who once wrote in a book called Women and the New Race, and I quote, love is the greatest force in the universe. When love defeats force, the moral force of women's nature will be unchained. And Herland, which is another feminist utopia, has the same concept, though they don't go off into the world. Like the, the there's a, a shipwreck or a plane crash. I can't remember. I think it's a plane crash and men discover basically the Amazon society and the Amazon society has to decide whether or not to let them stay. Like, are they valuable enough? Can they overcome their masculine tendencies enough to integrate into this peaceful world or do they have to get out? 
And that's mm-hmm. the whole concept of Hurlian. But, you know, like I said, in the air, the concept is not new exactly. And she's even not the first female protagonist. We have Mrs. Miss Fury. We have Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. But it's the execution and distribution. It's the right place. It's the perfect timing that made this work. So what was his pitch? Because Gaines was like, dude, every single one of these comic book heroines eventually fails. We just can't sustain it. But then Marston said, but they weren't super women. You know, your child's ideal might be Superman who uses power to help the weak. That's fine. But the most important ingredient in happiness is missing. It's love. So Marston said to him, the only hope for civilization is the greater freedom, development, and equality of women in all fields of human activity. Wonder Woman should set up a standard among children and young people of strong, free, courageous womanhood and to combat the idea that women are inferior to men and to inspire girls to self-confidence and achievement in athletics, occupations, and professions monopolized by men. And the guy's like, okay. I can see you've thought this through. <laughs> and it ends that, all right, I tell you what, I'm going to give you six months. You got to write it, you know, and produce it. And at the end of this six months, we're going to put it to a vote of the readership. And if they vote against it, she's gone. But if they accept it, we can keep going. Is that a deal? And Marston said, it's a deal. It only took him a few months to produce his first script about Suprema, which is the first thing the editor crossed off. And Marston said, that's fine. I don't care about that. But there's some points I need to keep in here. This needs to be here. The rest of it is fair game. Now, he did write a directive. It's a little lengthy, but it does explain from his perspective how he saw Wonder Woman. These were his directions in his first script. Quote, men, the Greeks, were captured by predatory love-seeking females until they got sick of it and made the women captive by force. But they were afraid of them, which is a masculine inferiority complex. And they kept the women heavily chained, lest one woman put one over as they always had before. The goddess of love comes along and helps women break their chains by giving them the greater force of real altruism. Whereupon, men turned about face and actually helped the women get away from domestic slavery, as men are doing now. The new woman, that's capitalized, underlined, thus freed and strengthened by supporting themselves on Paradise Island. They developed enormous physical and mental power, but they have to use it for other people's benefit, or they go back to chains and weakness. Well, there you go. There is the underlying philosophy. And what would she look like? Just as in Marsden's work in Hollywood, the goal was to skate as close to the censors as possible, Uh, which is sort of unnerving, I think, from the stated goal of Wonder Woman being, quote, the new type of modern woman who should rule the world. Marston actually asked the illustrator to make her look like the famous Varga girl pinups from Esquire magazine that the United States Postal Service had deemed obscene and lascivious material. So we're already like we're already on the edge of not making it past the gatekeepers anyway. But she was supposed to be as powerful as Superman, as patriotic as Captain America. So we've got red, white and blue situation. 
sexy like Miss Fury was, who, as I recall, was in a black cat suit. I can't really remember. And with the philosophy of Margaret Sanger. Okie doke. That is a very high bar. That's Wonder Woman. In the end, after many back and forths with the artist who was a man, Marston chose a man for this <laughs> for this book that was supposed to show what a female utopian society looked like to little boys so that when America turned into one, they would be ready for it. <laughs> but let's have a man write it and a man illustrate it. In the end, our Wonder Woman wore a red bustier with a giant golden eagle on it. She had a royal blue skirt, shin-high red boots with white trim. She did have her cuff bracelets. She didn't have the golden lasso in her first appearance, but she did have very Varga girl, dark wavy hair pulled back with her golden tiara with a red star. Nice. Nice. Some of that remains. Yes, it changes a lot. We're not going to go into all the changes of her outfit, but I thought the most interesting one was just six months after she appears, they turn her skirt into like culottes, like a tap shorts. So it looked like a skirt, but it was shorts, which makes more sense Mm -hmm. for the kind of superhero moves that she was pulling. Well, so All-Star Comics number eight, introducing Wonder Woman, came out and had the following tagline. At last, in a world torn by the hatred and wars of men, appears a woman to whom the problems and feats of men are mere child's play. A woman whose identity is known to none but whose sensational feats are outstanding in a fast-moving world. With a hundred times the agility and strength of our best male athletes and strongest warriors, she appears as though from nowhere to avenge an injustice or right a wrong. As lovely as Aphrodite, as wise as Athena, with the speed of Mercury and the strength of Hercules, she's known only as Wonder Woman, but who she is or where she came from, nobody knows. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. And nobody knew who the actual writer was because William Moulton Marsden used the pen name Charles Moulton. It's all mystery. And Wonder Woman's original origin story is basically this. Wonder Woman is raised on an island, Paradise Island, that's inhabited by Amazon women and no one else. Until one day a plane crashes on the island and the pilot, Captain Steve Trevor, disrupts the all-female demographic of the island. (laughs) He tells them about World War II and what's happening. And they're like, we obviously need to mobilize or send someone back to help him. To help fight the forces of hate and oppression. Yeah. So they hold a tournament, and Diana, the princess, daughter of the queen, wins the tournament, and she is sent off with Captain Steve Trevor back to the United States. Simple enough. Basic premise. Well, the reign of women will usher in an era of peace. That was the philosophy. Marsden had been advocating for a woman president for years. You and me both, man. (laughs) Add me to that list. (laughs) Yeah, it was an immediate hit with the readership, though. Uh, Only Superman and Batman were selling more comic books. But get this. This is the thing that blew my mind. I did not know this ahead of time. And I was like so happy to read about this that I didn't know what to do with myself. Included in every issue of Wonder Woman, a four-page mini comic book called, I just can't even wait to say this, Wonder Women of History. The History Chicks. 
approved biography of a woman from history in graphic novel form. You know, it, it was radical, both in the novelty sense and, and the 1980s sense. It was radical, man. Wonder Women of History, number one, was Florence Nightingale. Number two was Clara Barton. Susan B. Anthony's in there. Jane Addams, Joan of Arc. There's over 70 of them, of the original ones. We'll link you to actual screen caps of them. There were lots of former subjects. This episode, Wonder Woman ties not only the suffragists to the modern feminist movement, as well as another group of people that we're going to talk about in a little bit, but it also ties the history chicks into Wonder Woman because Sojourner Truth, Marie Curie, Abigail Adams, Jane Adams, Dolly Madison, Nellie Bly, Helen Keller, Joan of Arc. That's like a who's who of history chick subjects. So I loved that. And that was a Marsden idea, although it was drawn and written by a woman named Alice Marble. Everyone has such good names. So that was exciting and cool and went absolutely together with his philosophy that women and their power should be equal to men's. And he just wanted little girls and little boys, frankly, to read these stories and be inspired with what they could do in the world. So that's amazing. There is actually a new Wonder Women of History coming out. DC Comics is bringing it back as a graphic novel anthology. You can pre-order it like I did. Uh, but it'll be available on December 1st of this year. And they will cover modern women, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Elizabeth Warren, Beyonce, Marsha P. Johnson, Serena Williams, Janelle Monet. There's a whole all-star lineup of Wonder Women of History that's coming to us soon. I'm so excited for that. You know, I'm just thinking um, one of my son's favorite books was a graphic novel rendition of Swiss Family Robinson. Like we checked it out. Like I would check it in and then immediately just check it back out. I think we must have kept that book. <laughs> Why didn't you just buy him one? I don't know. Because I thought we were done. And every time he's, he would see it and go, oh, I want this. And I'm like, okay. But yeah, so I think graphic novels get in in a way that other books might not. And Wonder Woman aside you know, with all her power and might and all that. Imagine being a little girl in the 1940s coming across that centerfold catalog, those real stories for the first time. Think how valuable that is. It's presented so casually as in, and of course, real Wonder Women exist as evidenced in these four pages. You, you can be one when you grow up, even without super strength and a golden lasso. And then you just move on with the rest of your Wonder Woman story. It was just like so matter-of-factly presented in the middle of a Wonder Woman comic. And not only in the comics, this feature was printed as a standalone to send to schools. So there's little girls in classrooms looking at this thing that they had read in their comic books in a school setting. If that doesn't, you know, help bring home the point, I don't know what does. Yeah, yeah. So after six months, it was kind of a given, but they went ahead and had the poll. Should Wonder Woman join the Justice Society? And it was an overwhelming yes. Six little girls voted no. Like what? But anyway, <laughs> she was installed firmly in the pantheon of, of superheroes there. Although I have to say during the meetings, Wonder Woman was the secretary. I don't like that. No, I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> Well, we've introduced everybody and we have set Wonder Woman up for success. What will she become? Well, we'll have to tell you in part two. 
So we'll see you not in two weeks, but in a week. Hooray. If you were surprised by anything you learned today, as we sure were, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, won't you? Or tell a few friends about us. Find an episode you think they'd like and share it with them. Join us in the lounge where the current baking challenge is Elizabeth Bathory. I'm very afraid and am anticipating a lot of red. You can talk to Susan on Twitter at the History Chicks with an X. And our Wonder Woman Pinterest board and our website are ready for all of your rabbit hole falling needs. The song in the middle is Very Prepared by Emma Wallace. And the song at the end is Superhero by My Washing Machine. Could be washing machine. (laughs) We'll see you next time.